Luke chapter 5. Like a patient with a life-threatening condition, desperate for a doctor's attention, Jesus entered people's lives in the moment of their greatest need. So Jesus entered their isolation, he entered their shame, he entered their fear. Jesus didn't cave into cultural norms or religious practices that kept social outcasts at arm's length. Instead, what he did was he stepped into their mess and he provided a way out. He provided a way out of their mess. He said, follow me. Follow me was Jesus's invitation out of the mess. And it still is. Let's read Luke 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing near the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go Show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst uh, before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? 
which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And finally, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in the house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There are four things I pray we see here in these stories. We see a fisherman's fear. We see a leper's isolation. We see a paralytic's desperation. And we see a tax collector's shame. But we don't only see those things in those individuals. We see Jesus entering a fisherman's fear, a leper's isolation, a paralytic's desperation, and a tax collector's shame. He enters. He enters a fisherman's fear, really. And he brings him an invitation to follow. Let's, let's look at this first. A fisherman's fear. So the crowds are on the shoreline. They're pressing into Jesus so much that it made sense to Jesus to do what he does next. He gets into the boat. The hillside and the shoreline would serve as this amphitheater. The boat would serve as Jesus' pulpit. The fishermen had just returned from a long and unfruitful night. They're on the shoreline washing their nets. And after speaking to the crowds, Jesus turned to Simon, who's also called Peter, who's the owner of this boat, and he told him, come on, put out into the deep and let your nets down uh, for a catch. Now, I love how Peter responds. Verse 5, man, this is a long night. It was a bad night of fishing. It's it's probably a thing, come on, what's the point, (laughs) right? But he says, but at your word, at your word, I'll do this. And so they let the nets down thinking, we're not catching anything. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. I mean, he knows the scriptures, but we know how to fish. This is what we do. So they let the, they, they, they let the nets down uh, regardless at the word of Jesus. And the nets are filled to the point where they start to break. And so Peter calls over his partners. And then the, both boats are filled to the point of sinking. It's the biggest catch of their professional uh, career. They've never seen anything like this. This shouldn't have happened. Thoughts begin, I'm sure, to fill Peter's mind. Come on. Who is this standing in my boat? Oh my. This rabbi, this teacher, is truly from God. He he must be holy, meaning without sin. He's standing in my boat. What's he doing in my boat? I know who I am. I know what I've done. I know what I've thought. I know what my desires are. I know how much I've fallen short of God's standard. 
You know, Simon Peter must have in that moment felt like Jesus could see right through him. Everyone is astonished at what happened because what happened was supernatural. It wasn't normal. There was awe, wonder, and amazement. And what happened is that it hit Peter so hard that he was overcome with this deep sense of unworthiness. He realized, I am in the presence of holiness and power. And what was his response? He fell down at Jesus' knees and he said, depart from me. For I am a sinful man. He knew that about himself. This is the response that others of, of others in Scripture who have encountered God. We see this response. When they encounter in particular the holiness and the majesty, the power of God. We see this, especially uh, the story that comes to mind right away is that of Isaiah. Isaiah has a vision of the glory of God. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This represents his royalty and majesty. His train, it wasn't just a long train. Uh, His robe wasn't just a long one. It It filled the whole temple. He's majestic. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, here's what the seraphim, the angelic beings were saying, holy, holy, holy. Three times it's emphasizing the holiness of God. He's not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He is the set apart one, the perfect one, the one who is other than you. He's holy. He's holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Not a portion of it. Not a sliver of it. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah knew. He's thinking to himself, what's going to happen now to me? This is the Holy One of all. And I'm standing before the Holy One of all. I know what's in my heart. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken out with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's covered. Your sin is taken away. Wow. Okay, let's go back to Luke. With that in mind, you know, there's also a scene in Revelation chapter 1 where the Apostle John, he encounters the risen Christ and his glory is so splendid. It's so glorious that he falls at his feet as though dead. So this was a response of those who encountered holiness and power. The holiness and power of God. You see, Peter had never seen anything like this. And so he begins to feel a sense of awe. I would even say terror in that moment. Terror just fills him. And he's just coming to terms with the power of Jesus. That's what he's doing. 
You ever, you ever been there? You ever just come to terms with the reality of who God is, holy God of all? You ever really consider the holiness of God, the otherness of God, how completely set apart God is, perfect in every way, holy, holy, holy. When I think about the depths of God's holiness and how there's no limit to it, it makes me shudder. Peter's coming to grips with this. Peter will experience a deeper knowledge of Jesus. He's going to understand who Jesus is, especially after the resurrection. But here, all he can think of right now is, I know two things. God is present in and through this Jesus, and I am sinful. I I, got to get out of here. I need him to get out of my presence. And what does Jesus say? I love it. He says, don't be afraid, right? Verse, verse 10, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's okay. I know he, who you are, Simon. I know who you are, and I know what you've done. I, I've entered your boat. I've entered your life. I've entered your fears, and I want you to know you don't need to be afraid because from this point on, you will be catching men. Huh? What? You know, only Jesus has the authority in this moment to speak about and to Peter's fears. Why? Because his fears are rooted in, in, in an understanding of the depth of his sinfulness before a holy God. Nothing else can quiet those fears. No one else can quiet those fears except God. And Jesus speaks to those fears. Don't be afraid. Jesus told him what he would do. He'd be catching men. So there's an invitation in that. Peter himself then in that moment is captured by Jesus in that invitation. Jesus is using language that Peter could understand. He, he's, he's speaking in terms that he understood. You've been catching fish. Now you're going to catch men. Peter and James and John, they leave everything. Biggest catch of their career. I, I wonder if some of the other fishermen, you know, brought it in, got the money. I, I, they left everything and followed Jesus. This shows the value of Jesus surpasses everything. Jesus answered Peter's fear with an invitation to follow him. In, in other words, he's saying, hey, Peter, don't run from me. Follow me. I, I know you're afraid. Do not run from me. Follow me. And this invitation to follow me is an invitation out of the fear, out of the sinfulness that you are swimming in. Second, Jesus enters a leper's isolation. The man that we encounter in this second scene of Luke 5 is full of leprosy. It was an awful sight, seriously. Imagine a body wasting away, ravaged by a disease that he didn't ask for. This man was put out of the community. He's isolated from everyone else. He's considered an outcast. He had a skin disease, which means that you could see it. It was apparent. You could see the problem. Didn't take long for you to arrive at the conclusion that the man had some issues. You know how bad it feels, right? When you wake up in the morning and you have this huge pimple on your nose or forehead, right? I'm 43 years old and I still get pimples. Why? 
I should be way beyond that. Way beyond that. But I get them. I freak out. I'm like, Valerie, I need all the stuff that you can imagine that you can put on a pimple. I want it now. All right, so you, you wake up and you get this and you're just like, you feel like everyone in the world can see it because they can. But imagine, imagine waking up to discover that something had gone terribly wrong. It wasn't a pimple, but it was a skin disease. So you go to the priest, as was customary in that day. The priest would examine it and really be able to tell if you were diseased. The conclusion, you were. There were strict guidelines as to what you could and couldn't do after that. You had to live in isolation in a community of lepers, those with skin disease. Imagine if in that moment they tell you from now on you have to live in this leper colony. You've got to separate from your family, from your community, from your corporate worship, and you've got to do it for the good of the community. It's kind of like this uh, coronavirus People are just isolating themselves. They're just staying inside. I was talking to a friend in China uh, via FaceTime earlier this week. And he was saying, we, we just, we're not going outside. The government said not to. And it's weird. All the streets are empty. Malls are closed. The restaurants are closed. It's for the good of the community. Here, this man, this leper is considered an, unt- an untouchable. And he's required actually to wear torn clothes. He's required to cover the lower portion of his face. He's required to cry out, unclean, unclean, whenever someone approaches him. So they know, hey, I'm unclean. Don't come near me. I'm contagious. Imagine living that way. He must have forgotten what it really feels like to be human. And here's what this man does. He, he falls on his face and he speaks from the prison cell of his diseased body. He speaks from a place of complete isolation. And he begged Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. If you want to, Jesus. And that's, and that's what Jesus did. He reached out his hand and he touched the leper. He stepped into the man's isolation. Jesus, according to Isaiah 53, was a man acquainted with grief. He understood what it, was, what it felt like to be despised and mocked and ridiculed and rejected. Jesus understood what the man felt like. But he, he went beyond that. He, he stepped into the man's isolation. And how long had it been since this man had been touched by another human being? Did he wonder in that moment? If Jesus touches me, he's going to make himself unclean and he, he might become contagious himself. Why isn't Jesus repulsed like everyone else? The man knew what would happen. that He could potentially make Jesus unclean. Is Jesus running the risk? No, none of that mattered to Jesus. Jesus entered the man's isolation and he said, I, I want to do this. Be clean. Be clean. And the leprosy left him. Just like that. Just left him. The uncleanliness of this leper was no match for the purifying power of Jesus. Well, that's good news. Did you hear that? Let that sink in a little bit. The uncleanliness of the leper was no match for the purifying power of Jesus. So instead of the the man who was unclean, Making Jesus who touched him unclean, which would have been what would have happened. Anyone else touching this leper would have become become unclean. 
But Jesus touches the man who was unclean and his purifying power makes him clean. So Jesus told him now, show yourself to the priests. And the rationale behind this can be found in Leviticus 14. But the whole idea is that so that this man could be brought back into full participation in the life and community. This is restoration that Jesus is after. So go to the priest. It's like going to your doctor to get a clean uh, a note that you're all clear. You can go back to work. You're, you're not sick anymore. You're not contagious. But once that is given, once that stamp of approval is given from the priest, the man could go back home. He could enter the community. He could participate in society. He could, he could uh, participate in corporate worship. This is restoration. That's what Jesus was after. He heals him, but he goes further still. And he says, now, go show yourself to the priest so you can be restored to community. Oh, we're learning about Jesus here. I got I to tell you guys, studying this, this chapter, I mean, by the end of my, my week, I, I was just more in love with Jesus than I was at the beginning of the week. I'm, just, I'm seeing Jesus in ways that I just have never really seen before, truly. I, I want us to see Jesus for who he is. He entered this man's isolation. And then all the crowds start to uh, come around him because, well, he's causing quite a stir with healings like this. Great crowds were all around him, but it never kept him from spending time in prayer. We see in verse 16, this little sliver of a verse given to us that shows us Jesus' priority in the midst of kingdom work. What is it? But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray uh, but jesus the crowds but jesus you you healed and now you've got all these crowds you preach to them heal them too he's like no i'm going i gotta spend time with the father that's my highest priority because that was his source of power his source of joy that was his fellowship with the father time of prayer this teaches us about Jesus' priorities, and it really should help us examine our own priorities. We're like, hey, you know, ministry's happening, life is happening fast, fast-paced, things are going on, whether it's in your own life, you know, you, you feel like you're growing in the Lord, but are you retreating? Are you, are you getting away? Are you getting alone with the Lord and spending time in prayer? Are you spending that, that, that one-on-one time with Him, fellowship with Him? Even if it's in the car, even if it's a walk around the block when your kids go to bed, whatever. Find that time. Third, Jesus enters a paralytic's desperation. So he entered a fisherman's fear. He entered a leper's, uh, um, what was it? Isolation. And now he enters a paralytic's desperation. So news had reached uh, this paralyzed man's friends that Jesus would be coming through town. And they are determined to get to Jesus. They want to get their friend to Jesus. Uh, they can't get through the crowds of this house that Jesus is in. So they head to the roof and they start to pull away at the tiles. Well, desperate times call for desperate measures. And they're, they're doing this. They're going to get to Jesus. They are not going to let Jesus leave town without getting their friend in front of Jesus. So the first two men that we met in Luke 5 fell at Jesus' uh, knees. Peter did, the leper did, and now they want to get this, this paralyzed man before Jesus. That's just all they want to do. So they lower him down through the roof in the midst of this crowded house. 
And when Jesus saw their faith, verse 20, when he saw their faith, he saw it. It was tangible. I mean, it wasn't like a question. Do they really want to get to me? I think they do. Yeah, they're tearing up the roof. (laughs) Jesus saw their faith. And as a result, he tells the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. So the paralyzed man in this moment gets a lot more than he had even imagined. Jesus saw the physical need, but went deeper still. He saw the man's greatest need. What was his greatest need? I mean, you would think, oh, Darren, clearly his greatest need is to walk. I mean, he's paralyzed. But Jesus saw the greater need beyond the paralysis to the heart. The sickness of this man's heart. And he said, your sins are forgiven. Now, what happened when Jesus said this was that it opened wide the door for criticism and accusations. And this is when they begin to roll out. These criticisms and accusations start to come at Jesus after this point. And when the religious leaders were wondering in their heart, man, this man's speaking blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts. And he says, hey, listen, Jesus says, someone can say your sins are forgiven all day and not be able to back it up. But so, so you might know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Hit the pause button real quick because Jesus just gave himself a title. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Jesus just called himself the Son of Man. Now, we have to ask ourselves, where is he getting this? It could just stress his humanity, and in some ways, at sometimes it does. But here, Jesus is forgiving sins, which requires authority to do so. He is leaning on Daniel 7, which paints this picture in verses 13 through 15 of the prophet Daniel, of this exalted messianic figure who is given all authority on heaven and earth. So Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And he's saying, I've got the authority to do this. I've got the authority to forgive. That authority to forgive is mine. And I'm going to show you that authority. Rise. Pick up the mat you came in on. And the man did. The prison cell of paralysis and the prison cell of sin was no match for Jesus. And amazement fell on the whole place. Like the reaction at a slam dunk contest on the sidelines. Right? See that? So it makes a slam dunk. They're like, wow, that was awesome. You know, they're like falling on each other. You ever see that? It's hilarious. It's the best part of those slam dunk contests. You know, the, the other players, Wah! covering their mouth, dancing, falling on each other. I think that's what happened after this man. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. So far, what have we seen? So far, we've seen Jesus enter a man's fear. We've seen Jesus enter a man's isolation. We've seen Jesus answer and enter a, a desperation. And finally, we're seeing him enter a tax collector's shame. What do we have? This is Levi. He's also known as Matthew in Matthew, the book of Matthew. Same man. He's a tax collector. He's at his booth. This is in a lemonade type stand environment. People aren't really happy to see Levi. Think of a toll booth. He's collecting taxes on goods and travel and more. But he works for the enemy, according to the Jews. He works for Rome. He's collecting taxes for our enemy, for our oppressor. So he's considered a traitor. He is a social outcast. He's ostracized. He's given a cold shoulder from society and from religious leaders. 
So how does this man Levi feel? Well, tax collectors were notorious for collecting more than they should. They had a very lucrative business going on. I, I picture them kind of like a crime boss at the top of the food chain. You know, just they controlled the money. And so Levi undoubtedly attracted people who wanted him for his money. So he's a wealthy man, but he's an empty man. He is a guilt-ridden man. I, I think he's haunted by his occupation, spiritually bankrupt. He, he feels isolated because of his wealth and his occupation. He has to. Does he feel like a traitor? Does he feel like that on the inside? Well, he knows he's been dishonest. He knows where he's put his interests above everyone else's. And so I imagine that this man is just filled with shame and disgrace. And so where does he go with it? And then we see in verse 28, this great reversal of Levi's life. Jesus comes to the tax collector, to the tax booth, and he just says these two words, follow me. There's more to it that we're not seeing here, that we're not given. Follow me. But what we're told is that he left everything and he followed Jesus. Conviction must have fallen. Desire. Desire to change. Here's what he did. He followed Jesus, which implies he listened to Jesus and he obeyed Jesus. And he was willing to imitate him. There's a lot there. And what he does next is he honors Jesus by throwing him a banquet. So Jesus then starts to eat with this tax collector at his banquet with other tax collectors. You know, eating with someone in our day has value and meaning, right? I mean, you eat with someone because you, you want to get to know them. You spend time with them. And in eating with them, uh, that happens. Life is shared. But in Jesus' day, what this was called was table fellowship. And it meant a full-on acceptance of that other person. That you accept them. You're okay with them. And so the religious authorities saw Jesus at this banquet with these tax collectors, and they're just freaking out. Because they believe to eat with guys like this would actually make them unclean. Why would Jesus, the rabbi, do this? And that's when Jesus rolls out what would be, and it really could be, the summary statement of the Gospel of Luke. And the mission statement of Jesus' entire ministry, and I just love this. Verse 31, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have, come to call the right, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why is he there? Why is he there? He's there for the sick. And the question that we have to ask ourselves in reading these stories of Jesus entering someone's fear and shame and desperation and isolation, we have to ask ourselves, do we see that that's exactly what Jesus has done for us in entering our broken world and entering our sin-sick world and taking on the stuff we're made of? God is anything but indifferent towards broken humanity. So he's entered our world in the person of his son and he's walked uh, really this path of obedience for us and he dies a substitutionary death in our place. This is how God would, through Christ, lead us out of the mess that we're in called sin. This is how radical Jesus' call to follow him is. Jesus understood that he came as a ransom for many. He came to die 
And that what he accomplishes in calling us to follow him was made possible through his death and resurrection. I I got a question for you. Do you know you're sick? Sick with sin. Are you in denial? Are you ignoring the the symptoms? You ever been sick and just try to put it off? Like, ah, I'm not sick. Walking around with a big red nose and stuff coming out of your eyes. Ah, I'm fine. Sneezing. Everyone knows you're sick. We all know you're sick. You shouldn't be around here. Are you ignoring the symptoms of the sickness of your heart? It's going to catch up with you sooner or later. Do you hear what Jesus says? I have come to call sinners to repentance. And when you hear that, do you feel relieved? Repentance. He's come to call sinners to repentance. Total life change. And that begins with owning up to the fact that you're sick with sin. There's no repentance without you owning up to the fact that you're sick with sin. Let's rewind Luke 5 and see what uh, Peter did. He fell to his knees before Jesus and he said, get get away from me. I'm, I'm a sinful man. And what did the leper do? He fell on his face before Jesus. And what did the paralyzed man do? He was put before Jesus. It's the posture that we all need to have before Jesus at some point. It's the the way forward. On our knees, on our face. I'm a broken man in need of salvation. I'm a broken man in need of forgiveness. I'm a sinner and you are not. That's the place where we begin. But he doesn't leave us there. What's he say? Follow me. When he says, follow me, listen to what happens. He leads us out of the mess, out of the brokenness. It's the message we carry. There's hope beyond this frustrating mess of brokenness, sin, and shame. Doesn't leave us there. He's come to call sinners like you and me to repentance. So like a patient with a life-threatening condition, desperate for a doctor's attention, He's entered our lives and he's done it in the moment of our greatest need. And he calls us to follow him. And I pray to God, you hear that call. He's still calling. Will you answer the call? Or will you stay in your mess? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Luke 5. These beautiful stories of you entering the brokenness of humanity in Jesus. We're humbled by it. Lord, you know it's, it's been my prayer this week that you would uh, bring us to a place of seeing our sickness, our desperation, our brokenness. Uh, Lord, we need your grace to see it, to own up to it. But Lord, also give us eyes to see the grace and the forgiveness that's in Christ. Father, help us to celebrate that. Lord, I pray for anyone in here who maybe is in that place of seeing that they need to repent, that they, they've never actually done that. They've actually never owned up to their sinfulness. Lord, meet them in that place today. 
Father, each one of us here in this room are called to it and at some point have to do it. And, and, and Lord, all of us are aware of our brokenness at some level. So Lord, help us to not deny it or to ignore the symptoms. But instead, Lord, help us to be honest before you and humble before you. And help us to hear now in the midst of that the call to follow you and what that means for our lives both now and forever. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.